If you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. Today we come to the end of our study in the book of Jude. A book that started in one direction, but that direction changed. The letter became a sermon. He writes, if you look in verse number one, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. And then in verse number three, he says, Dear friends, or beloved, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. That is to say, Jude tells his readers he felt compelled to write to them a letter very different from what his original intention was. The change wasn't done lightly. It's done because of their situation. We don't know the details of that situation, but obviously the readers do. Jude does. And he writes for them that they would contend for the faith. And and why does he say this? Well, if you look at verse number four, for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. It may be that part of the problem and why Jude writes this letter is that certain individuals who are godless have become now part of congregations. Maybe one congregation, but I suspect there's more than one. They have changed the grace of God. God has freed us from our sins. They are like, oh, now I'm free to do whatever I want. And they have denied Jesus by their actions. They're still walking around doing ungodly things in an ungodly way. Why are they not being punished? Why are they not being condemned? Why are they still alive? Throughout this short letter, this sermon, Jude gives illustrations of those who, in fact, did something wrong, but were not immediately punished. So he talks about the Israelites in the wilderness, the redeemed ones. He talks about the fallen angels, the highest ones, and then Sodom and Gomorrah, the privileged ones. And in each of these cases, there was condemnation, but it wasn't immediate, at least not in the case of Israel. And Sodom and Gomorrah had been wicked for some time before God finally brings judgment upon them. And Jude wants his readers to know that if God destroyed the Israelites, if he bound with everlasting chains the angels uh, who had positions of authority, and if he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns, then he, in fact, will one day deal with these individuals who have come into the congregation with their wicked ways and their false teaching. How does Jude reach this conclusion? Well, the three examples he gave us were of those who had advantages. So if somebody comes into the congregation and they're hearing the word of God being preached, then they've heard the truth. They have that advantage. It is unlike someone who might be a pagan who has never heard of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who worships false gods and images, um, we might say, well, God will be merciful to them. But someone who has advantages, like the Israelites, God redeemed them out of slavery, like the angels who had positions of authority, like Sodom and Gomorrah, we are told 
that it was, they were located in a region described as being like the Garden of Eden. They had all these advantages, all these privileges, but they rebelled against God, and therefore God judged them. In much of what follows after Jude gives these illustrations, Jude describes these individuals in terms of the fact that they are dreamers. They live in unreality, or they live in a reality of their own creation. They pollute their own bodies, they reject authority, and they slander celestial beings. And as we've seen, that last one is somewhat difficult, but Jude helps us out by giving us an illustration of when Moses died, uh, Michael contended with Satan for the body of Moses, and he did not say, you, you know, you language that might have in fact been appropriate. He did not condemn Satan, but rather he said, the Lord rebuke you. He continues in verse number 10 by saying that these men speak abusively against things they don't understand. They're just talking and talking. They don't really know what they're saying. But fascinatingly, in verse number 11, Jude doesn't just say, you know, God curse them, throw them into everlasting darkness. If you look at verse number 11, he says, Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Jude is saying, alas, it's too bad. It's tragic that these individuals are going down the wrong road, the road to ruin, just like the three uh, individuals that he mentions, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Cain was the first person born into the human race, also the first murderer. Balaam was a prophet who was in it for profit, if you wish. And there was Korah who rebelled. He was a Levite, by the way. He rebelled against Moses and Aaron. And God caused the earth to open up and swallow him. It is only Korah of these three men who, in fact, was judged immediately. We don't know how long Cain lived. He may have lived 900 years. His father lived over 900 years, Adam. Um, Balaam did die shortly after what he did, um, but it wasn't immediate. And I think Jude really wants to encourage his readers, don't be discouraged by the fact that these individuals who are doing what they should not be doing are still walking around and breathing. They're still alive. Last Sunday, in the conclusion, I took the sixth sense approach, uh, pointing out that Through this series, we've been talking about false teachers. But if you go through the book of Jude, not once does he refer to these individuals as teachers. Uh, He does, in fact, use a reference to shepherds, um, but I think it's, it's more a metaphor. It's not saying they are shepherds, they're teachers. So if you look at verses 14 and 15, Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That means that what we've been studying in the book of Jude is not simply about someone who is in the pulpit, someone who is a teacher, but in fact all those who claim to be the children of God, they in fact will be judged for their false teaching, their false actions. Such individuals, as we saw last week, are as dangerous as hidden reefs in the ocean, as useless as rainless clouds. They are as dead as barren trees, as dirty as the foaming sea, and as misleading as wandering stars. 
Jude wants his readers to know that God will, in fact, one day deal with these people. But having said that, we should consider several points, that we are to be on our guard not only against those who are teaching, like, you know, keep keep a a running notebook, what is it that Damon is saying, I'm listening to someone on on YouTube or whatever, and find out what error they have. It is, in fact, that we are to keep watch on each other. And I don't think in paranoia, okay, we just need to be on our guard. And as I mentioned last week, there are at least two different ways of learning. One is more formal, that's usually what we think of, and me being up front, that's what I hope is happening. I speak, you listen, and you learn. I teach, you learn. But there's another way in which we learn, and it's called acquisition. And it's what we, we learn unconsciously. We don't even realize. We hear something, and it becomes imprinted on us. We hear a song, we learn the lyrics without trying to think about it. And for those who have children, uh, I think you can attest to this, that you may try to teach your children the right thing, this is what you're supposed to do and don't do this, and they get it. But then it's really frustrating because they pick up things you don't want them to. They pick up your bad habits. It's called acquisition. And as the people of God in a congregation, it isn't just during the sermon that you learn. It is afterwards as we speak to one another through the week, as we communicate with one another, that in fact we teach each other and we may learn things that we should not be learning. And so we need to be on our guard. We need to remember the example of Jesus who came into the world not simply to speak, to speak the truth or to teach, but to live the truth and in his living show what the truth was. Now in the last part of the epistle we come to today, Jude presents a strategy. He gives his readers, the faithful believers, a strategy how we are to deal with these individuals. These who are living in a way they should not, they are teaching things, they are saying things that are not correct. What are we supposed to do? His strategy has three parts. We are to be aware, we are to accept the responsibility for our own growth, and we are to act with compassion toward those who are in fact wrong, okay? You will note that Jude begins this section with the word, dear friends. He's referred to his readers this way three times in this brief epistle. Uh, The King James has the word beloved, um, which I think better expresses what he's saying. It comes from the word agape. Uh, But Jude wants his readers to know that as harsh as he has been in this letter, and we saw that in the first sermon, that a lot of people reject the book of Jude because it's so harsh, that even though he has been harsh, it doesn't mean he doesn't care for them. It's like going to the dentist and them having to do stuff that may be painful to you. He's like, you, doctor, you don't care about me? Why are you hurting me? It is, in fact, to bring about a cure. It is his love for them that causes him to write this letter. We should never forget that. So first of all, be aware. Verses 17 and 18, if you look at that. But dear friends, beloved, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. 
That is to say, this should not surprise the readers of Jude's epistle. It should not surprise us that, in fact, there are those who are scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. The apostles foretold this. The apostles who had authority from God, those who had authority from Jesus Christ, we need to listen to what they have to say. Their words have weight. Scoffers are those who treat with contempt and ridicule things of vital importance. And when will these individuals show up? In the last times, Jude tells us. This is kind of important for us because I think it has been much misunderstood. When exactly are the last times? Did Jude think he was in the last times? It would seem so. I mean, we're almost 2,000 years later. Um, What did he mean? Well, the opening of the book of Hebrews says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Which is to say, when Jesus came into the world, it marked the beginning of the last days. We have the previous age, we have the Old Testament, but when Jesus comes, it marks the beginning of the last days, or as Jude puts it, last times. Okay? Some people imagine that this is speaking just about those few years before Jesus comes back. No, since Jesus has come into the world, it has been the beginning of the last days. Um, in, again, in Hebrews, the author says, Now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. So the last days, we live in the last days. And Jude's readers lived in the last days. So in the last days, there will be scoffers. Those those who will ridicule will, will treat the teachings of Jesus with contempt. In verse number 19, Jude returns to the, the matter of these false believers, if we can call them that, these individuals who are wrong. Verse 19, these are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. You know, rather than the unity that comes from love, they divide because they are not motivated by love. They follow mere natural instinct. We saw this in verse number 10. They're not driven by their intellect, but by their, their instinct, by their desires. And they do not have the spirit, which means that they are not believers. They are not children of God. This will stand in contrast to something we'll see in a few moments. So first of all, be aware. Okay? We should not be surprised when those who we think are believers, in fact, will espouse false beliefs false doctrines, and their lives will demonstrate that as well. We need to be aware. But secondly, we can't put it on them. We live in an age of victimhood. It's like, well, it's not my fault. Brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, they said this, they live this way. That's why I went off the deep end. No, you need, in fact, to accept responsibility for your own growth. Verses 20 and 21. But you, dear friends... Build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Jude has written this to warn them. Okay? 
Now he tells them there's something they're supposed to do. He's done his part. He's warned them. Now they have their part. This is what they're supposed to do. They are to strive to grow in grace. They are to strive for spiritual maturity and not put it off on someone else. So the first part of this is build yourselves up in your most holy faith. You may remember that when he started this letter, he had intended to write to them about the salvation that they share. I felt I had to write to you and urge you to contend for the faith which was once for all entrusted to the saints. The faith he's talking about is the teachings, that which Jesus taught, that the apostles taught. Jesus taught the apostles, the apostles in turn have taught the believers, this is the faith. And Jude says, you need to build yourselves up in the most holy faith. What does this mean? Does this mean I need to learn more doctrine? Does this mean I need to go upstairs and read all of these books, just get theology, just pack my brain with theology? I don't think so. No, in fact, I'm pretty sure that's not the case. Jude wants his readers to see the whole of their lives, their intellects, their thinking, their actions, their consciences, their motives or imaginations as being brought into conformity with the teachings that we hear from Jesus. It is to be brought into conformity with God's word. The reason I say this is because this is the exact opposite of these false believers whose consciences are totally messed up, who don't follow their intellects, they follow their instincts. They they live in unreality. Their imaginations have been twisted. No, if I am to be a child of God, I am in fact to live my life in conformity with God's word every part of my being. I will point something out here. and I think maybe if this is the only thing you hear in this sermon, this is what I want you to hear. You will notice that he says, yourselves. To grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is not a solo quest. It's not a spiritual quest I can do on my own. It is a corporate activity. It is something we are to do together in common cause and common concern. To be isolated can be dangerous for the believer because we are part of the body of Christ. And I cannot stress this enough. I think as Americans, we are very individualistic. And so this really sort of just goes off our back. We don't really hear this. Um, And living through a pandemic I think we are isolated from one another and we might begin to think that this is the norm. This is the new norm for us as God's people. No, we are to grow in grace and we are to do it together. We are to help each other. It isn't something that we do on our own. We are to build ourselves up together. The second thing he says is that we are to pray in the Holy Spirit. In contrast to what we just read about these false believers who do not have the Spirit, we do have the Spirit of God, and we are to pray in the Holy Spirit. Paul writes about this in Romans 8. Let me listen as I read to you what he said. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. 
For he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. What I take away from this is if you imagine that prayer is something you can do by yourself, in your own strength, then you've missed the boat. It is something that the Spirit... Paul says sometimes we don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit is the one interceding. He knows our hearts. He knows our minds. He intercedes for us. So when Jude says to these people that you are to pray in the Spirit, I think he's saying don't rely on your own self. Don't say, well, I can do this myself. As we've seen, prayer is a conversation. God the Father begins a conversation, and we respond in prayer. But here's the infinite God, and here's finite, sinful Damon. How, how can I even begin to engage in this conversation? Well, I have the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who enables me to pray and intercedes for me and prays with groanings that words cannot express. The third thing he says is keep yourselves in God's love. In verse number one, he identified his readers as those who are called, those who are loved, those who are kept. And now as he winds down his letter, he wants his readers to remain in God's love. But this almost sounds, you might say it suspiciously sounds like Jude is saying this is something his readers can do on their own. No, we do not control God's love for us but we do have a responsibility to do as he tells us. In John 15, the night before he was crucified, Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. That's how you remain in God's love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. We are to obey. That's what it means to keep ourselves in God's love. And then lastly, he says, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, the second coming, when the Lord Jesus will return. The Christian faith only makes sense if God keeps his promises. If God doesn't keep his promises, then what is the point to what we're doing? It is because he keeps his promises and that Jesus promised to return and he will one day return Jude encourages his readers to wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that's part two of the strategy. First of all, we are to be aware. Secondly, we are to take responsibility for our own growing in the Christian faith. But the third part of his strategy may surprise you, and that is be compassionate toward those who are contaminated. Look, if you would, at verses 22 and 23. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. It isn't enough that we take care of ourselves. Okay? We are to do that. We're to take responsibility. Don't, don't be a victim. Okay? Take responsibility. But we are also to be concerned for those who we might be tempted to say are the enemy. They're the bad guys. And Jude says you need to be merciful toward them. As recipients of God's mercy, we are to be merciful to others as well. And the three categories that Jude has in mind here, those who doubt, those who require aggressive action, 
snatch them as from the fire, and those whose pollution is so bad that we need to really be cautious in our dealings with them. To put it another way, those who are, fall, who are wandering about and almost falling from the faith, those who are falling from the faith, those who have fallen from the faith, we are to be merciful toward them. Those who doubt, Doubt in the New Testament is seen as a combination of believing and not believing at the same time. That's what doubt is. It's not a separate category. It's when you mix believing and unbelieving at the same time. The man who wanted Jesus to cast the evil spirit out of his son, Jesus told him, everything is possible for him who believes. If you believe, this can happen. And the father answered, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. In other words, Jesus, I'm believing and not believing at the same time. James makes this even clearer when he talks about those who are double-minded, the double-minded man. He has two minds, a mind of faith, I believe, and a mind of unbelief, I do not believe. In this case, the individuals I think that Jude has in mind are in turmoil, Perhaps they have doubts, they have questions. They can't make up their minds. They've been going to church, they've been hearing the truth, but then there's other people come in who are saying things that don't go with the apostles' message, with the words of Jesus, and they're really confused. They're doubting. And Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt. Secondly, there are those who have gone, I think, a step further. Um, Those who have already sort of taken a step in the wrong direction, we need to aggressively pursue them. Um, If you look in verse number 22, snatch others from the fire and save them. In other words, they're almost in the fire of hell, and you need to snatch them away from that. By the way, this is an expression that we find in the book of Amos and the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, this idea of someone who is in the fire, about to be burned, and you snatch them out of the fire. Why they are in fire is not indicated. It could be that they're playing with fire, that they sort of know these guys are wrong, but they're going with it anyway. Um, It could be that they are like Lot. You know, Lot is told by the angels, you need to get out of Sodom, you need to get out of town because God's going to judge, and it's just kind of hard to let go. And so if you read the passage in Genesis, the angels actually drag Lot out of Sodom. They have to drag him away. They may not appreciate your actions on their behalf, but you need to do it. Be merciful to those whose conditions demand aggressive action. When I was 11 years old, I almost drowned. I went on a camping trip with a church group, and it was uh, below one of the dams near Lake Mead, and they had let water out the previous night. And so we were sleeping on on the beach, on the sandbar there, um, and the water had come up a bit, but we didn't realize the current was so strong. And so we were out swimming, and I got carried away by the current. I had taken swimming lessons the previous month, so I knew how to swim, but I panicked. And I remember seeing, as I was going down, seeing somebody running down the beach toward me, and he jumped in, and he, he, he rescued me. 
I wanted to be rescued. <laughs> I didn't want to drown. But when we finally got out of the water, he was, had been wearing a t-shirt. The neck of the t-shirt had been stretched because I had been clawing so desperately. I wanted to be saved, but I was fighting him. I was resisting him. In the same way, those who, in fact, are in the fire, you're going to have to snatch them out, and they may resent it, but I think in the end they will be grateful for that. In some sense, we are all, we are all burning sticks who have been snatched from the fire. We all are. And should we not do that for others as well? Then the third category are those whose condition requires personal caution. That is, we want to show them mercy, but it's going to be mixed with fear because if we're not careful, we'll be taken down with them. We should not think, I'm going to rescue this person. They've fallen into error. I know what's right, and I'm going to save them. Jude says, you need to be careful. You need to be very careful. There are some who are so polluted that they can only be dealt with with cautious compassion. Otherwise, we might be taken down with them. We are to, be, we are to show them mercy. There's no question about that. But we are to do it with fear or caution. One writer put it this way, it is quite possible to approach evil with good intentions and then through want of proper humility and caution end in finding it fatally attractive. I'm going to be merciful. No humility and we be dragged down with their false teaching. Why fear? Why fear? Okay. It is not fear of being defiled. It is the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we need God's wisdom as we deal with those who have fallen into error. Sin is something that God hates. We should as well. God shows mercy. He has shown mercy, and so should we. But we should remember, we're not God. And we have the potential to be dragged down by sin. The passage in Zechariah that I mentioned earlier fits here. Uh, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man, that is Joshua the high priest, a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. We have all been snatched from the fire. We have all had filthy rags. And it is the grace of God that has saved us. So those who have fallen into error, we should pray for them. We should be merciful toward them. But we should also be quite cautious. Now we come to the end of Jude. And the last two verses of the book of Jude, I think, are the most familiar. If you ask anyone, do you know anything from the book of Jude? They probably know the doxology at the end. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. 
To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Very familiar, a popular benediction, but we need to see it in its context. The larger context is that it is the end of this book, but it is the bookend of this letter, this sermon that Jude has written. To those who have been called, those who are loved by God, those who are kept by Jesus Christ, now at the end, at the end we hear this wonderful doxology. That's one way to look at it, but the more immediate context is that Jude has been writing about troubles. The troubles that have been brought on by false teachings, by bad behavior of these individuals who have crept into the congregations. He warns his readers, but the readers at this point might say, I don't know, Jude. I I don't know that I can keep going. It is at this point, as he ends his sermon, that he tells them of the power of God. Our security does not rest in ourselves. (laughs) If it did, we'd be in trouble. But it rests in the almighty power of God. One author has written, it lifts the thoughts from earthly conflicts with which the author has been compelled to busy himself up to the heavenly realms where God sits enthroned amidst eternal might and power. I think it might have been enough if Jude had said, if he had stopped to say, to him who is able. If he had just stopped there, to him who is able. Because throughout scripture we are told of God's ability. He's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to establish his people. He's able to help those who are being tempted. He is able to subdue all things. But Jude doesn't stop there. He continues that he is able to exercise power on our behalf, to keep you from falling. He's just given us example after example of those who have fallen. Israel, the angels, Balaam, Cain, Korah, Sodom and Gomorrah. He's given us all these examples. And you can't help but think, listen, if the angels who are in the presence of God, if they fell, what hope do I have? Well, God is the one who is able to keep you from falling. And more than that, to present you before his presence without fault and with great joy. One could say that the first part of this could be seen in the metaphor of a race or of a particular course. But then he points to the end of the race. The end of the race, he is able to present us at the finish line with great joy, without fault. He will present us faultless. This is Old Testament language because if you read, people get bogged down, but read the book of Leviticus about presenting sacrifices. The sacrifices were to be without blemish, if you wish to be faultless. Again, if, that's the, if that is what is required, then I'm lost. I have no hope. How can we be faultless? How can I be presented to God the Father as faultless? Because I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He was faultless, and he stood in my place. And therefore, should we be surprised when we read, and with great joy, 
Jesus gave his life. He died on the cross to save us. And at the end of time, at the great judgment, he will joyfully say, these are the ones I died for. These are the ones I gave my life for. These are my brothers and sisters. They are your children. He presents us with great joy. And then if you look at verse number 25, um, in the English translations, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, and power. But actually, the way that it is written in Greek, there is no verb to be there. So it is, to the only God our Savior, glory, majesty, power, and authority. This is who he is. It is the very nature of God. He is glorious. He is majestic. He has all power. And he has all authority. Can you imagine if you are reading Jude's letter for the first time in the first century, and you might actually physically begin to tremble, so afraid because of the things he said in such a harsh way, and you think, boy, there's, there's no hope for me. And Jude says, no. God is the one who has all authority. He has all power. He is majestic, and he is glorious. How do we know this, by the way? How does Jude know this? Well, God has revealed himself in creation. Look at the glory of creation. The power that must have been required to create the world. You know, the more technologically advanced we become, the farther out into the universe we're able to reach out. And it is just staggering. It is staggering. And we are told that God spoke and these things came to be. If God did that, can he not in fact keep us from falling? We know that God is powerful because of what we see in human history. We know that he is powerful because of what we read in scripture, but supremely from what we see in the person of Jesus. David wrote about this in many ways, but I'll read from 1 Chronicles 29. This is someone who lived before Jesus came into the world. He's in the old covenant, and yet he knew of the majesty of God. Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Really sounds a lot like what Jude just wrote, doesn't it? There's one big difference, though. The difference is the Lord Jesus Christ, the supreme revelation of God. David lived before Jesus came into the world. And yet he could see the glory and the majesty of God. But now Jesus has come into the world. And we see the, God, the love of God demonstrated supremely. The word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen his glory, John writes, the glory of the one and only Son who came 
from the Father, full of grace and truth. So how is this all, how long is this all going to last? How long is God going to have authority and majesty and glory and all this stuff? We'll look at the very last verse, now and forevermore. There will be no point in our existence in God's existence, in which he will not have all glory and majesty, power and authority. For those who reject the book of Jude, I say, I feel bad for you because you've lost out on this amazing doxology at the end. It's like watching Shawshank Redemption. You gotta go through the bad stuff before you get to the good ending. And Jude has been harsh in this letter. There's no question, but he hasn't left his readers without hope. And at the end, we find out that it is in fact the grace of God, the glory of God, the authority of God to redeem us through Jesus Christ to make us his people. And may we, as those to whom mercy has been shown, be merciful to others. Let's pray together. Our Father, for those of us who have been Christians for a long while, we may have forgotten that in fact we were snatched from the fire, that you showed us great mercy, and you still do, but I think we begin to take it for granted. And so when we hear of false doctrine, those who are saying things that are not correct, those who are living lives contrary to what Jesus taught us, our first instinct may be to see them as the enemy rather than being merciful to them. Or we may begin to think that we are strong enough to take them on, we will rescue them ourselves. You have been merciful to us. May we be merciful to others, to those who doubt, to those who have begun to creep into false teachings and wrong behavior. But may we not imagine for a moment we can do this on our own. In the same way that we are to pray in the Spirit, not in our own strength, but in the spirit. May we, by your grace, show mercy to others. I find it hard to believe, almost inconceivable, that one day I will be presented faultless, without blemish that's not who I am right now. But because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, one day with great joy we will be presented to you, blameless, faultless. Help us to remember that we need each other. We're not to stand alone. We cannot stand alone. 
We are the body of Christ together. For those who have been mentioned during the time for prayer, for Vivian's daughter, for Ellie, for Gwen's dad, for the Avellino family, we commit them to your care, to a gracious Father. And this coming week, we are reminded of your faithfulness in birthdays and anniversaries. I give thanks for your amazing grace in my life. Thank you for loving us, for proving your love by sending the Lord Jesus. May your spirit and your grace go with us. Give us an awareness of your presence every moment in the coming week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.